Book Two, Chapter Four, Part Four of The Octopus by Frank Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The gentleman fixed the group with a prolonged gaze. He said never a word, but little by little he was convinced that the drummers told the truth. All at once he grew wrathful, his face purpling. He withdrew his head angrily, buttoning his curtains together in a fury. The cause of his rage was inexplicable, but they could hear him resettling himself upon his pillows with exasperated movements of his head and shoulders. In a few moments the deep bass and shrill treble of his snoring once more sounded through the car. At last the train got under way again, with useless warning blasts of the engine's whistle. In a few moments it was tearing away through the dawn at a wonderful speed, rocking around curves, roaring across culverts, making up time. And all the rest of that strange night, the passengers, sitting up in their unmade beds, in the swaying car, lighted by a strange mingling of pallid dawn and trembling pinch lights, rushing at breakneck speed through the misty rain, were oppressed by a vision of figures of terror. Far behind them in the night they had left, masked, armed, galloping toward the mountains, pistol in hand, the booty bound to the saddle-bow, galloping, galloping on, sending a thrill of fear through all the countryside. The young doctor returned. He sat down in the smoking-room, lighting a cigarette, and Annixter and the drummers pressed around him to know the story of the whole affair. Well, the man is dead, he declared. The brakeman. He was shot through the lungs twice. They think the fellow got away with about five thousand in gold coin. The fellow? What, wasn't there four of them? No, only one. And say, let me tell you, he had his nerve with him. It seems he was on the roof of the express car all the time and going as fast as we were. He jumped from the roof of the car down on the coal in the engine's tender and crawled over that and held up the men in the cab with his gun took their guns from him and made him stop the train. Even ordered him to use the emergency gear. Seems he knew all about it. Then he went back and uncoupled the express car himself. While he was doing this, a brakeman, you remember that brakeman that came through here once or twice, had a red mustache. That chap? Sure. Well, as soon as the train stopped, this brakeman guessed something was wrong and ran up, saw the fellow cutting off the express car and took a couple of shots at him. And the fireman says the fellow didn't even take his hand off the coupling pin, just turned around as cool as how do you do and nailed the brakeman right there. They weren't five feet apart when they began shooting. The brakeman had come on him unexpected, had no idea he was so close. And the express messenger all this time, well, he did his best, jumped out with his repeating shotgun, but the fellow had him covered before he could turn round held him up and took his gun away from him. Say, you know, I call that nerve just the same. One man standing up a whole train load like that. Then, as soon as he'd cut the express car off, he made the engineer run her up the track about half a mile to a road crossing where he had a horse tied. What do you think of that? Didn't he have it all figured out close? And when he got there, he dynamited the safe and got the Wells Fargo box. He took five thousand in gold coin. The messenger says it was railroad money that the company were sending down to Bakersfield to pay off with. It was in a bag. He never touched the registered mail, nor a whole wad of greenbacks that were in the safe, but just took the coin, got on his horse, and lit out. The engineer says he went to the eastward. He 
got away, did he? Yes, but they think they'll get him. He wore a kind of mask, but the brakeman recognized him positively. We got his anti-mortem statement. The brakeman said the fellow had a grudge against the road. He was a discharged employee and lives near Bonneville. Dyke, by the Lord, exclaimed Annixter. That's the name, said the young doctor. When the train arrived at Bonneville, forty minutes behind time, it landed Annixter and Hilma in the midst of the very thing they most wished to avoid, an enormous crowd. The news that the overland had been held up thirty miles south of Fresno, a brakeman killed and the safe looted, and that Dyke alone was responsible for the night's work, had been wired on ahead from Fowler, the train conductor throwing the dispatch to the station agent from the flying train. Before the train had come to a standstill under the arched roof of the Bonneville depot, it was all but taken by assault. Annixter, with Hilma on his arm, had almost to fight his way out of the car. The depot was black with people. S. Behrman was there, Delaney, Cyrus Ruggles, the town marshal, the mayor. Genslinger, his hat on the back of his head, ranged the train from cab to rear lights, notebook in hand, interviewing, questioning, collecting facts for his extra. As Annixter descended finally to the platform, the editor, alert as a black-and-tan terrier, his thin, osseous hands quivering with eagerness, his brown, dry face working with excitement, caught his elbow. "'Can I have your version of the affair, Mr. Annixter?' Annixter turned on him abruptly. "'Yes!' he exclaimed fiercely. You and your gang drove Dyke from his job because he wouldn't work for starvation wages. Then you raised freight rates on him and robbed him of all he had. You ruined him and drove him to fill himself up with Carraher's whiskey. He's only taken back what you plundered him of. And now you're going to hound him over the state, hunt him down like a wild animal, and bring him to the gallows at San Quentin. That's my version of the affair, Mr. Genslinger. But it's worth your subsidy from the P.N.S.W. to print it. There was a murmur of approval from the crowd that stood around, and Genslinger, with an angry shrug of one shoulder, took himself away. At length Annixter brought Hilma through the crowd to where young Vaca was waiting with the team. However, they could not at once start for the ranch, Annixter wishing to ask some questions at the freight office about a final consignment of chairs. It was nearly eleven o'clock before they could start home. But to gain the upper road to Quien Sabe, it was necessary to traverse all of Main Street, running through the heart of Bonneville. The entire town seemed to be upon the sidewalks. By now the rain was over and the sun shining. The story of the hold-up, the work of a man whom everyone knew and liked, was in every mouth. How had Dyke come to do it? Who would have believed it of him? Think of his poor mother and the little Tad. Well... After all, he was not so much to blame. The railroad people had brought it on themselves. But he had shot a man to death. Well, that was serious business. Good-natured, big, broad-shouldered, jovial Dyke, the man they knew, with whom they had shaken hands only yesterday, yes, and drank with him. He had shot a man, killed him, and stood there in the dark and in the rain, while they were asleep in their beds, and had killed a man. Now where was he? Instinctively eyes were turned eastward over the tops of the houses or down vistas of side streets to where the foothills of the mountains rose dim and vast over the edge of the valley. He was in amongst them, somewhere, in all that pile of blue crests and purple canyons he was hidden away. Now for weeks of searching, 
false alarms, clues, trailings, watchings, all the thrill and heart-bursting excitement of a manhunt. Would he get away? Hardly a man on the sidewalks of the town that day who did not hope for it. As Annixter's team trotted through the central portion of the town, young Vaca pointed to a denser and larger crowd around the rear entrance of the city hall. Fully twenty saddle-horses were tied to the iron rail underneath the scant half-grown trees nearby, and as Annixter and Hilma drove by, the crowd parted, and a dozen men with revolvers on their hips pushed their way to the curbstone, and mounting their horses rode away at a gallop. "'Is the pussy,' said young Vaca. Outside the town limits the ground was level. There was nothing to obstruct the view, and to the north, in the direction of Osterman's ranch, Vaca made out another party of horsemen galloping eastward, and beyond these still another. "'They're the other posses,' he announced. "'That further one is Archie Moore's. He's the sheriff. He came down from Visalia on a special engine this morning.' When the team turned into the driveway to the ranch house, Hilma uttered a little cry, clasping her hands joyfully. The house was one glitter of new white paint. The driveway had been freshly graveled, the flower-beds replenished. Mrs. Vaca and her daughter, who had been busy putting on the finishing touches, came to the door to welcome them. "'What's this case here?' asked Annixter, when, after helping his wife from the carry-all, his eye fell upon a wooden box of some three by five feet that stood on the porch and bore the red Wells Fargo label. "'It came here last night addressed to you, sir,' exclaimed Mrs. Vaca. "'We were sure it wasn't any of your furniture, so we didn't open it.' "'Oh, maybe it's a wedding present,' exclaimed Hilma, her eyes sparkling. "'Well, maybe it is,' returned her husband. "'Here, my son, help me in with this.' Annixter and young Vaca bore the case into the sitting-room of the house, and Annixter, hammer in hand, attacked it vigorously. Vaca discreetly withdrew on signal from his mother, closing the door after him. Annixter and his wife were left alone. "'Oh, hurry, hurry!' cried Hilma, dancing around him. "'I want to see what it is. Who do you suppose could have sent it to us? And so heavy, too. What do you think it can be?' Annixter put the claw of the hammer underneath the edge of the board top and wrenched with all his might. The boards had been clamped together by a transverse bar, and the whole top of the box came away in one piece. A layer of excelsior was disclosed, and on it a letter addressed by typewriter to Annixter. It bore the trademark of a business firm of Los Angeles. Annixter glanced at this and promptly caught it up before Hilma could see, with an exclamation of intelligence. "'Oh, I know what this is,' he observed, carelessly trying to restrain her busy hands. "'It isn't anything.' just some machinery, let it go. But already she had pulled away the excelsior. Underneath, in temporary racks, were two dozen Winchester repeating rifles. What? Why? What? 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 murmured Hilma blankly. Well, I told you not to mind, said Annixter. It isn't anything. Uh, let's look through the rooms. But you said you knew what it was, she protested, bewildered. You wanted to make believe it was machinery. Are you keeping anything from me? Tell me what it all means. Oh, why are you getting these? She caught his arm, looking with intense eagerness into his face. She half understood already. Annixter saw that. Well, he said lamely, 
you know it may not come to anything at all but you know well this this, this league of ours i suppose the railroad tries to jump quien sabe or los muertos or any of the other ranches we made up our minds the leaguers have that we wouldn't let it that's all and i thought cried hilma drawing back fearfully from the case of rifles and i thought it was a wedding present and that was their homecoming the end of their bridal trip through the terror of the night echoing with pistol shots through that scene of robbery and murder into this atmosphere of alarms a manhunt organizing armed horsemen silhouetted against the horizons cases of rifles where wedding presents should have been annixter brought his young wife to be mistress of a home he might at any moment be called upon to defend with his life the days passed soon a week had gone by magnus derrick and osterman returned from the city without any definite idea as to the corporation's plans lyman had been reticent he knew nothing as to the progress of the land cases in washington there was no news the executive committee of the league held a perfunctory meeting at los muertos at which nothing but routine business was transacted a scheme put forward by osterman for a conference with the railroad managers fell through because of the refusal of the company to treat with the ranchers upon any other basis than that of the new grading it was impossible to learn whether or not the company considered Los Muertos, Quien Sabe, and the other ranches around Bonneville covered by the test cases then on appeal. Meanwhile, there was no decrease in the excitement that Dyke's hold-up had set loose over all the county. Day after day, it was the one topic of conversation, at street corners, at crossroads over dinner tables, in office, bank, and store. S. Behrman placarded the town with a notice of $500 reward for the ex-engineer's capture, dead or alive, and the express company supplemented this by another offer of an equal amount. The country was thick with parties of horsemen armed with rifles and revolvers, recruited from Visalia, Goshen, and the few railroad sympathizers around Bonneville and Guadalajara. One after another of these returned, empty-handed, covered with dust and mud, their horses exhausted, to be met and passed by fresh posses starting out to continue the pursuit. The sheriff of Santa Clara County set down his bloodhounds from San Jose, small, harmless-looking dogs with a terrific bay, to help in the chase. Reporters from the San Francisco papers appeared, interviewing everyone, sometimes even accompanying the searching bands. Horse hooves clattered over the roads at night, bells were rung, the mercury issued extra after extra, the bloodhounds bayed, gun butts clashed on the asphalt pavements of Bonneville, accidental discharges of revolvers brought the whole town into the street, farm hands called to each other across the fences of ranch divisions. In a word, the countryside was in an uproar. And all to no effect. The hoof-marks of Dyke's horse had been traced in the mud of the road to within a quarter of a mile of the foothills, and there irretrievably lost. Three days after the hold-up, a sheep-herder was found who had seen the highwayman on a ridge in the higher mountains to the northeast of Tuarusa. And that was absolutely all. Rumors were thick. Promising clues were discovered. New trails taken up. 
but nothing transpired to bring the pursuers and pursued any closer together. Then, after ten days of strain, public interest began to flag. It was believed that Dyke had succeeded in getting away. If this was true, he had gone to the southward, after gaining the mountains, and it would be his intention to work out of the range somewhere near the southern part of the San Joaquin near Bakersfield. Thus the sheriffs, marshals, and deputies decided. They had hunted too many criminals in these mountains before not to know the usual courses taken. In time, Dyke must come out of the mountains to get water and provisions. But this time passed, and from not one of the watched points came any word of his appearance. At last the posses began to disband. Little by little, the pursuit was given up. End of Book Two, Chapter Four, Part Four